the leaders who are performing the best are the ones who say, you know what, my job here is to make sure my team plays their best possible game. They have the chance to run the experiments that they want. I'm empowering them to take risks. They are allowed to fail. And I'm confident as a collective, we will grow and learn faster from this and make bigger improvements. But that is a very different way of looking at yourself, which is not, I know the answers, but I know how to find the right answers. And we are back for series three of transformation stories from the award-winning Beltec Cafe. This series, we're talking innovation, commerce, emotive marketing, and career changes. We'll also dip into trends in fintech, digital health, retail, mobility, manufacturing, and speak to CEOs, CDOs, SMEs, and lots of other acronyms too. As always, you can expect gloriously unscripted discussions that shed an open and transparent light on the ebb and flow of our digital world. I'm Tizzy Philp, and welcome to the podcast. Could it be the case that the more senior leadership are involved, the less people experiment? Could there be a misconception that the highest paid person's opinion counts the most? And does that in turn mean that to really feel free to experiment, we need to totally rethink our approach to it? In this podcast, I'm joined by Hajir Pukhakali, Global Vice President Strategy and Value at Optimizely. In his eight years at Optimizely, Hajir has conducted more than 300 experiments and has led research into the defects of hierarchy, the science of running the perfect experiment, and ultimately the behaviors that truly trigger change. So Hajir, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Tizzy. It's great to have you and I'm very uh, excited to have this conversation because I know it's filled with data. So really looking forward to it. Let's begin with a more in-depth introduction into you. Can you tell me more about you, your experience, and what has brought you to a career focused on the benefits of experimentation? Gladly. So I actually began my career in management consulting, uh, advising companies really on their strategy, uh, where they should think about the long term. And one of the things I really noticed was there was such a focus on being conservative and being right that people weren't really taking risks. And so when I made a pivot in my career and decided I wanted to work for a startup, I was really drawn to experimentation because I felt fundamentally this is how all businesses should truly operate. This is what consultancies aspire to get companies to act like. And the most beautiful part was it was really a liberating part of my career. I could run, as you mentioned, over 300 experiments. And it's inevitable that you fail when you run experiments of that kind of volume, but you learn from it so much. You get to take risks. And for me, it was one of the most liberating parts of my career because I realized no matter what I'm going to do, I'm going to fail a lot. And so the most important thing I could take away from this experience is what am I going to learn and how am I going to improve in the process? And through that, experimentation just really grew on me. And something that I think one of my mentors at Optimizing once said to me, but experimentation is a radical philosophy. And it's something that's really dawned on me because I realized that as you start to apply this mindset, both towards the way you optimize a website, but you think about a business, you really start to understand that it's quite fundamental in the way that we want to change and grow ourselves. And so experimentation became something that was uh, very near and dear. Amazing. And I love that idea of feeling safe to fail. That frees you up to think about things in a completely different way if you're not worried about failure. Love that. Great. So we're going to talk about that in so much more detail. Let's strip back the role of experimentation then. What value does it bring to an organization and why are you such a strong proponent? So experimentation brings tremendous value to companies. Uh, this is something that's actually been researched quite thoroughly. Um, Harvard Business School did a study a couple of years back where they looked at the value testing provided to startups. 
and they found that investors were willing to invest 10% more dollars into companies who were experimenting than those who weren't when they looked for the unique value of experimentation by itself. Um, similarly, our own research surveyed our customer base, and we found that the median company reported 9% more digital revenues. So we know from the data that when people experiment, they make smarter decisions. And the reason for it's quite logical. Let's say you make 50 product changes at the end of the year, all of which had an effect. 50 might be better, 50 might be worse. If you experiment, you know not to implement the 50 that were worse. You're able to roll those back and you get the benefits of those who were better. So it just helps you play the odds better. But for many people, it is a scary prospect because it exposes them to the things that did that were wrong. And so in pursuit of getting that greater improvement for the business, you have to be very critical uh, and honest about the things that you're doing that are not having effect. And so the transition is hard, but the value is there for those who seek it. So where do you think that people are typically going wrong when it comes to experimentation at the moment? Oh, a lot of places. Uh, I think the first place is most people start with experimentation, this idea of I'm just going to make a really simple visual tweak. Like if I change red to blue, this will psychologically trigger someone to purchase more. And the beauty of a button color test is if it wins, you make money. And if it loses, you lost maybe 15 minutes of your time. It's very easy to run. But to really have a meaningful effect on how people behave, you need to do something very fundamental that's going to affect their experience. And so a lot of the times when I look at experimentation, we see one of two things happen. Either experimentation is very, very much on the periphery of the decision making. And so it's really someone who's just there to pick like the coat of paint on a car that's already been fully designed and assembled. Or in turn, it is something that's driven by senior leadership. So there are VPs and C-level executives making all the calls. And there's a team on the ground that's merely forced to act out what they're asking for, but they don't have the freedom to experiments. Great experimentation is kind of a marriage of all of these. People have the right to make tweaks. They have the right to be involved into the design of the vehicle itself. And they are uh, peers to senior leaders in that decision-making process. Senior leaders come with great ideas and they're allowed to augment them. They're not merely there to execute and measure the ideas of others. And we're going to talk about those senior leaders in a little bit more detail and, and the influence that they have, which is going to be fascinating. I can't wait to get into that. You also talk a lot about the need for well-designed experiments. Is it the case that people just don't know how to experiment well? I think it's the case that the way a lot of people have been taught experimentation is not ideal for the business world. So when I first learned about experiments in high school, I was given examples of all these great physicists and classical researchers who ran this one beautiful lab experiment. They changed one tiny tweak. They measured that with certainty. And then we all benefit from that centuries later and we talk about in the classrooms. And I see many experimenters hold themselves to the same standards. My job is to make a hyper exact change to measure exactly what that is worth. And then people will benefit in perpetuity from the knowledge we've generated. What we actually find is that, first of all, your idea's value expires. You might have this great experiment idea, but as your consumer base shifts, as devices become different, the knowledge expires. And so if you make a super tiny tweak and it expires in a couple of years' time, the effect you're having is quite minimal. And the second thing that we notice is that people really over-index on this need for the scientific perfect explainability of an experiment. So I'll give you an example. Somebody might say to themselves, we have this great marketing page. We're trying to drive people to sign up for an event or to purchase the products. And they'll tell me, well, I don't want to change too many things at once. If, because if I change the text and the color and the size of text and the placements, now I won't know exactly which of these levers made the change. And the problem with that type of mentality is it'll work for an organization that's running tens of thousands of experiments and can measure every tweak one by one. But for most companies around the world who are running maybe 100 tests a year, they need to take big, bold leaps if they want to get somewhere. And so what ends up happening is, as people hold themselves to this idea of, I have to be extremely scientifically rigorous, I have to make very tiny tweaks, I need to be very exact in them, 
they have a lot of small movements that don't add up to enough. And meanwhile, the company's moving at this fast pace and is really unbothered by whether what they're doing is scientific or not. And the experimentation team is holding themselves to the highest standards with making the least amount of change. And so for a lot of companies, especially when you're operating at smaller orders of magnitude, you need to take bigger and bolder risks. And designing a great experiment means exposing yourself to risk, making larger changes, and doing things that really move the needle substantially. And that's a mindset shift for a lot of people because it's very much the opposite of how we've been conditioned to think about testing. And off the back of that, I'm interested then, in your view, what does a really well-designed experiment look like in practice? So in practice, a really well-designed experiment opens itself up to a lot of different pathways. So I'll give you an example. Let's say you're working with a business and they're saying to themselves, we want to add new filters to our product pages. And so they've got all these great products and they decide, you know what, now's a great time to add filters to these. So an engineer goes out there, they build the code to create this filter. And then they might say, well, we want to implement at the top of the page. But you might tell yourself, okay, well, that's just one single version of that filter. If it fails, we don't know if people don't want filters or if the usability of that filter is just poor. And so you can tell yourself, great, let's build that filter, but I want to try a few different versions of it. Let's try it to the top. Let's try it to the left-hand side. Maybe it should be fixed or floating. But maybe the order of the filters matters as well. Maybe we have the wrong sub-filters available for people. It's not actually what they want to engage with. The benefit of this experiment is once you've run this test, Assume all versions of your filter lose. Now you know conclusively, hey, filters aren't necessary for our customers, we should focus on something else. Or if a version of that wins, you get the best version of that filter implemented quickly. But when people simply run the filter and add it without any alternatives, they can misinterpret that result. And they say to themselves, well, the filter didn't work. Maybe people don't want filters. But you're actually not sure if that's true. All you know is that particular version of a filter didn't work. And you don't know if that's because people didn't want your feature or if the usability of it was poor. And so as people open themselves up to many different versions, they can take more risks, but they also have cleaner learnings from the experiment. They actually know how to interpret it better. What kind of timelines are you talking about then when you're running these experiments? Because the assumption is, is that some are a matter of testing in a couple of hours. What are the results we're seeing in a couple of hours versus maybe something that's running for months? How do you prioritize and measure across those different needs? Absolutely. So I would say whenever people are running experiments, and it's a little bit of a question of what they're trying to measure. For some things, uh, we might get results in a very short time frame because we're looking for very quick reactions out of users. Uh, let's say we want to make a fundamental change that's going to affect people for broad variants of time. Usually we go in the order of full weeks just to capture the whole behavior. If an experiment should normally run, let's say, a week for a business that has a lot of traffic, and we decide we want to double the amount of variations, double the ideas are testing simultaneously, that test might now run for two weeks. And so the most fundamental thing is, for a lot of people, they feel that pressure. I have to get a result out the door quickly. So I'd rather get back to my boss and give them a poor answer right now than get back to my boss and say, hey, it's going to take another week, but I'll have a better answer for you later. And this trade-up is quite fundamental because it means people are playing a worse version of their job. They would rather placate people on timelines as opposed to give them what they actually need. And that rush for quick short-term results trades off against their long-term performance. So when we talk about timeframes, it's important for people to figure out what is an appropriate time frame to make a decision, but to not prioritize time frame over quality. Because as people do that, they design a worse version of their laboratories. They run worse experiments. They call things too quickly. They get fewer insights, but they fail fast, but they don't win often. We're about to go into more detail on some research that you undertook on the defects of hierarchy, which I mentioned earlier, which I'm very excited for because it's very, very interesting. But before we go into that, 
what you're talking about here sounds like it, it, you need people who understand the fundamentals of experimentation, you, you, the nuances, the level of detail that you're going into, the data, the analysis that's happening. How do you get a company prepared to experiment in the right way? How do you make sure that you have that team dynamic in place? That is such a good question. It, it's something I've been very fascinated by because when I first began with experimentation, I believed every company around the world should be testing. This is something that is the future. All companies will go down this direction. And nowadays I realize it's it's a lot more nuanced than that. For companies to experiment, you, you, have to, you cannot be experiment-driven if you are not a data-driven company first. And you cannot be data-driven if you are not data-trusting, if you don't have good quality data to begin with. So for organizations who want to test, there's a couple of fundamental things that are critical preconditions to be good at testing. The first of these is you just need to have some information about your users and customers. You need to be comfortable reading the data about them, know where to start. Uh, but equally critically, you need to have some degree of engineering resources. It's not worthwhile to experiment if you don't have the ability to create changes. So you need to have some engineers at your disposal, or at the very least have people who understand how to use tech in a clean or hacky way to be able to make changes rapidly. And the third and the most critical of all is you need the right set of personalities and culture. So some organizations love to experiment. Uh, they're very open to that. They want to innovate. And a broad variety of people can be successful there because a culture is set up for them to succeed. But a lot of organizations are much more at the level of, well, I'm happy for you to test if that makes me money, but please don't interfere with anything that I'm doing. And when that is the mindset, the types of personalities that succeed in experimentation have to be very politically savvy. They have to be, to some degree, mavericks who are willing to look at a crowd of people who all disagree and say, I'm going to go the opposite direction and be okay with that decision. Uh, they need enough technical savvy to be able to work with the engineers, enough data savvy to be able to draw information out of the analytics, and critically have empathy for the user. And so the reality is the less the culture of an organization is aligned to experimentation, the more the people running testing need to be capable all-arounders. And so there is inherently that bar. If companies have great data, they have a great culture and they have resources, many people can be successful. But if they're lacking on these elements, the level of skill required of their teams goes up, not down. Okay, let's come back to that in a, in a bit more detail later then, because I want to get onto this defective hierarchy research that you did. What do you mean by defective hierarchy? So uh, we talk about the effects of hierarchy on learning and performance. And what we wanted to understand was, uh, what is the effect of the highest paid person's opinion? And so there's this notion in experimentation that when a really senior person is involved, suddenly we become hierarchical in our decision making instead of making the best choice based off the available data. By that, you're suggesting that you want to appease the most senior person in the room or do what they would prefer. Exactly. Yes. You're, you're coming into a situation and you know it is to the benefit of your career if you make this individual happy. You will get further along if you agree with them when you're wrong than if you disagree with them and you are right. Uh, and so these types of personal incentives start to affect your decision making and the outcome of which is you're playing a smart political game, but you're not playing the right game for the business as a whole. And so we were really curious about that. Uh, is this true in experimentation? And just as critically, are senior leaders detrimental uh, to the experimentation process, which was something we kept hearing? And the interesting thing about the data is the answer is actually mixed. So what we found is we looked at, together with Harvard Business School for several years at tens of thousands of experiments that have been run. And we looked at how senior the people involved in that experiment were. So if you think about this quite simply, a vice president or higher would be somebody who was a six, a director would be a five, a senior manager a four, uh, all the way down to an analyst who would be a one. And we looked at that maximum level of seniority, the steepness of hierarchy, 
And we asked ourselves, as hierarchy got steeper, do experiments perform better or worse? And the result we found was actually there was a bifurcation. It was mixed. We saw two effects simultaneously, and they roughly cancel each other out, which is actually really cool to see. So we found that when really senior people were involved in experiments, they came up with experiments that were more likely to succeed. So senior leaders do have that experience. They've seen people things work in the past. They're able to come up with that idea, and it's an improvement over the status quo. But here was a really interesting part. When the ideas of senior leaders won, they were less successful than that of more junior teams, meaning uh, a senior person might improve a particular metric by 2%, but when a junior person won, they might win less often, but when they did, they might improve that by 3 or 4%. And so there was this trade-off. And what we fundamentally found out from this is uh, there's an inherent conflict that is happening. Senior leaders have great ideas from the past that might have been best practice five to 10 years ago, and they are still an improvement over the status quo, but they are no longer the best practice that exists today. And when junior teams are involved, they don't have that experience to draw from to say, I know something that's better, let's just implement that. However, as they are going in search of ideas that might work, they're more likely to identify a breakthrough that is closer to a best practice that would exist today. And so that's really what we find in the trade-off. Seniority has a role to play in experimentation. Senior leaders can guide people in direction say, I've seen from experience that this is an improvement. But the mistake that they make is they close off the discussion early. They say, I know this will work. Don't waste your time trying anything else. Build it as I've expected and let's move on from this. And in doing that process, they force people to sprint with blinders on. So then how do you decouple experimentation with decision-making? That is extremely hard. I would actually argue that experimentation is a little bit of a tiny revolution in the decision-making process. We are fundamentally saying that decisions can be made better, that the people who have the knowledge are not necessarily those with the most decision-making authority. And a great way to arbit that is to look at the results of people's actions. But the more fundamental thing is, how do you decouple ego from decision-making? And I think this is perhaps the hardest thing for a lot of organizations. There's a difference in mindsets I've seen between the senior leaders that I've worked with, where some told me my job is to make the right decision, and others told me something much closer to my job is to ensure the right decision gets made. And I would argue people in that latter category are much more successful at testing. Because to people who believe that testing is a chance to validate the superiority of their knowledge or ideas, results can be felt as threatening. Results can be quite difficult to process. And there's kind of this unwillingness sometimes to really let other people be too involved in the decision-making process. And it creeps the fear of experimenting. A hundred percent. Because now suddenly you've built up this reputation, this idea that you know what the future holds. And as the data comes back, it turns out, well, you have some good ideas, but you've no crystal ball. And the leaders who are performing the best are the ones who say, you know what, my job here is to make sure my team plays their best possible game. They have the chance to run the experiments that they want. I'm empowering them to take risks. They are allowed to fail. And I'm confident as a collective, we will grow and learn faster from this and make bigger improvements. But that is a very different way of looking at yourself, which is not, I know the answers, but I know how to find the right answers. That's so interesting. There will be so many companies out there of all sizes Companies that are 100 years old, companies that are a year old. Do you feel like experimentation has the same prominence in both and should be used in both in both companies? And then when you've answered that, we're going to go into more detail in how companies can actually start experimenting, how they can start building the team and putting it all together so that it works. But is experimentation just as valid for enormous companies with hundreds of thousands of people as it is for tiny startups? 
Absolutely. We've looked at our data and we asked ourselves, well, let's look at companies that have over 100,000 employees or those with fewer than 1,000. And what we found is that neither of these were actually predictors of who was going to be better at experimentation. Both organizations had equivalent opportunities to succeed. But the most interesting thing that we found was we found teams of 10 people who were testing who were outperforming teams of hundreds who were testing. And that's a very interesting takeaway because you might say to yourself, well, only the biggest organizations have a chance to succeed or only the largest teams will be successful. But what we actually found is that culture and best practice are the strongest predictors of success. In essence, a team of five people who are willing to take risks, who are empowered to learn and fail, can make larger changes than a team of 100 people who are extremely rule-bound, who don't have a lot of freedom and authority, and who feel constantly at the mercy of the whims of an organization. And so for large companies, the challenge that they have is uh, testing is a tough thing to scale to an organization of 100,000 people. So how do you empower a skunk works or a select group of people to be able to take risks and operate on a different culture and to let that grow and mature and scale throughout the org? Some organizations have done this really successfully. The New York Times, uh, which is um, you know, a marquee newspaper that's been around for, I believe, over a century. IBM, which is uh, over half a century old. These organizations took experimentation, scaled that to the order of thousands of experiments and built incredible success in the process. But other larger companies tend to struggle. And I think the fundamental reason why we see large organizations struggle is that the existing modes of hierarchy inside these companies struggle with this new mode of decision making. And they don't know how to create a group that's either fundamentally different from the rest of the org or to pivot themselves towards that change. And so that interpersonal political process is quite critical to manage in a large organization where a small organization gets more passes because they haven't quite grown to the level of complexity yet. Yeah, I think that's a, that's an interesting point. And actually, it reminds me of a lot of conversations we've had with people who talk about innovation and how to make innovation happen within an organization and the need to create innovation hubs or specific teams that are purely focused on innovating within an organization and scaling those innovations across the, the products or the business. Okay, so let's make it more tangible then for everybody who is listening to this podcast and goes, God, this sounds great, whether they're a small company or... 100,000 people plus, where do they start? If they were to go, okay, this sounds fantastic. How do we build this in our organization? What is the first step? Is it the creation of, of a small team or is there something more structural that needs to happen first? In your experience, what's the first step? The first step is to find people with the right skills. Step number one is you want individuals who have that savvy, who are a bit the mavericks, who think different from the crowd and who have that will to persevere. That is something fundamental in any experimentation program. And I can tell you, the people I've seen struggle the most with experimentation are those who struggle when they hear no. When somebody tells them they're not allowed to test something and they say, well, I guess I'm not allowed to do this, that's oftentimes a sign that they're not going to make it. They're not going to persevere enough to do something fundamentally different. So the first step for an organization is to find that kind of talent that's willing to take a risk, who's willing to try something fundamentally new, who is open to operating under a microscope where you see your success and failures and you learn from them. The second and the most critical part is they have to understand their users. So a lot of people tell me, hey, you've run all these experiments. Please tell me what are great winning and test ideas. And I can give them great examples of experiments that were really insightful. But the reality is my job is not to come here and run the best experiments. It's to diagnose the problem that is ailing a business. And so in many cases, when I work with a company, I'm less interested in the ideas that they have of how they think their website could be improved than I am in their understanding of how their users are presently struggling and suffering. I want to know what is ailing your end customer, what is annoying them, what is frustrating them from their perspective. And that leads to its own improvements. But when companies have that true empathy for their end user and they have people empowered to figure out the solutions to their problems, it kind of almost organically happens from there. 
But if either of those two is missing, no amount of structure or supervision will make the process work. So those are the tangible steps for a company that is considering starting experimentation and scaling experimentation within their organization. What about those companies who feel like they are experimenting, but perhaps they're not doing it in the right way? Where are they going wrong in most times that you see? So we can actually see this very cleanly from the data. One of the most common mistakes companies make, 80% of companies around the world A-B test, meaning they test an A version, their existing website, versus a B version, the new version of the site they want to test. And the problem with this is if you take a group of people in a room and you tell them we're going to run an experiment, we're only allowed to make one single change, what people are going to do is they're either going to be highly risk averse and designed by committee. They're all going to have to agree on this one non-threatening experiment together. Or the person with the most power in that room ends up being the one picking what's happening. Typically somebody very senior or somebody who is uh, very extroverted and has a lot of sway. The problem with either of those approaches is the best ideas don't necessarily get selected. And so one of the strongest signs that an organization is leaving value on the table is if they're not trying enough things simultaneously, if there aren't other pathways for other people to take risk. Because if you design an experiment with four ideas that you can test instead of just one, you can have that idea of a really senior stakeholder that's checked off, an idea the whole crowd agrees with, an alternate version of that idea that you think might you know, avoid a bug or some other user issue, and then a shoot for the moon idea. The more opportunities you give yourself to bet, the more risk you can take. And for the vast majority of organizations, they are too risk averse. Testing is the idea that the decisions of the past weren't the best ones, and through data, we can make better choices. But if you're not willing to make different choices than we've done in the past, the data is not going to help you have that breakthrough. Really good point. Love that. I've also spoken to you in the past where you mentioned that people assume if they're copying someone else's experiments, then they're getting it right. And you used a really great analogy about stealing other people's medicine. Maybe that's something that you can repeat for us. Gladly. So I would say experimentation has a lot in common with medicine. If you go to your doctor and you're trying to get the right medication, your doctor has to ask you, well, what is ailing you? What is hurting right now? Tell me about your lifestyle. They might do some checkups on your heart rate, on your blood work, something else to figure out what is the right medicine for you. Because they're trying to solve your disease. But a lot of people, the way they approach experimentation is they're coming into their doctor and saying, hey, my neighbor looks really fit. Tell me what medication they're on. They're literally saying, hey, I want to look like that person. So if you just give me the same meds, I'm sure it'll have the same effect for me. And that is not how it works. Rating your neighbor's medicine cabinet is not going to make you healthier. But in experimentation, people try to do this all the time. They look at their competitors' websites and they say to themselves, well, if I just copy what they're doing, I'll copy their success in the process. And the problem is, I would say for the vast majority of business I've worked with, including some that have run thousands of experiments, maybe a quarter of their website has been tested and three quarters has kind of just been hacked together in gut feel or just by tradition. And so as you're copying them, you might assume, well, I'm copying their edge, but you might simultaneously be actually be copying their defects. Or another example I can give you, I won't name names, but I saw a award ceremony, very prestigious one conducted for some of the best websites, the best designed websites in the world. And it so happened that on this top 10 list of the best websites in the world, a fair number of them were clients of mine where I had access to their analytics. And the winner of this particular year had a conversion rate of 0.4%, which was atrocious, but their website was really pretty. And so now I was thinking to myself, the designer who made this website that is underperforming is going to be lauded. They're going up on stage. They're going to give an award speech. They're going to get to go to new businesses and replicate their errors. And many companies around the world will look at that award and say, this is what I should look like. But this is the problem. The industry might guide you in a particular direction. It might tell you this is a beautiful design or these are the people to listen to. But you're not actually sure if you're copying someone's edge or their defects. 
That's very hard to distinguish. That's why you always need to diagnose for yourself. What do I need to fix? And then test if that actually works. I love that example. And I've heard that so much as a marketer. And the point, you know, yes, it might win awards, but is it actually performant? Does it actually make a difference? So important that we don't lose sight on that. But then that comes as part being part of a, a large organization where you've got people who are purely focused on creative and people who are purely focused on performance and analytics. So, I mean, it's hard, right? You've always got that trade-off. They've got very different personalities and needs. Yeah. How yeah. do you bring them together? It's it's impossible. <laughs> we'll make it work. It's like oil and water one day. This is incredible insight. I'm loving this conversation and it's flying by, but my people might listen to this and go, okay, but like we're already stretched to the max. Our budgets are tight. We're seeing redundancies across multiple sectors. People are having to let people go. This sounds like a lot of extra work for a company. Is it? So it's extra different work and less of some of the same work. So the same research from Harvard that pointed out that companies who experiment to raise 10% more venture capital funding to get investors to notice also found that they were able to release 9 to 18% more digital features and products. And when we're talking about feature releases, we don't just mean they were simply pushing code to the site. There was also an increase on that. But they were releasing the types of updates that would get marketing press, where when you looked at you know, MarTech wires, you saw some fundamental groundbreaking new update had been made. And what the research actually identified was while experimentation is this new work process you have to stick to, it actually gets rid of some old processes. And so when they looked at companies who weren't testing, developing a feature might have only taken them a month. But the process of getting everybody to agree that that was the correct feature, that they were allowed to implement that, to go through all the loops, the bottlenecks, to have all the conversations, all the stakeholders, would drag out that cycle by three or four months. So the engineers were constantly working. They were just constantly dragged down in meetings where they had to have the same conversations over and over. And the organizations who experimented were able to let go of it and say to themselves, you know what, we trust you to make this decision. We're confident if you're wrong, we can roll it back. And if you're right, we'll benefit. And so a lot of the politics that went around the release of features was reduced. So what a lot of organizations see is certainly in the beginning when you start testing, it is initially more work because you're learning a new process and you're still unlearning the old. So in the beginning, there's a bit of a hump. But with time, you actually get an improvement. Because now you're able to experiment, you have to spend less time in the politics because people trust the data. And as a result of that, you become more productive. And so for most organization, uh, the fear they have is not that they'll be doing more work if they're experimenting. In the long haul, the work actually gets easier. But it's really that transition phase. How do they manage that in the beginning? And so there's a little bit of a hump that people have to cross. But uh, by all the data, it is worth it. And all the research we've seen actually indicates that companies who experiments become more productive from an engineering standpoint. They push more change to their site. They launch more features and products. Well, I am sold and I know we are sold because Valtech is certainly using experimentation too. And I always say on these podcasts, they're like anti-salesy podcasts. I hate that we ever want to mention products or push things from a sales perspective. But I think it would be remiss of us not to mention to an audience who's interested in experimentation, the recent news of the sunsetting of Google Optimize. What's your take on that? And what are the opportunities for people looking for an alternative? And I should say as a caveat, if you're listening to this post-September 2023, then this might be less relevant for you, but <laughs> go on. So the sunsetting of Google Optimize is uh, a really groundbreaking moment for the industry. I've been in the space for eight years. I've never seen something like this happen. Uh, Google has, of course, uh, paved the way in popularizing analytics with GA. Uh, and in doing so, they start to push a lot of their customers to use Google Optimize. Uh, I believe a half a million websites are using Google Optimize, tens of thousands of major enterprises. 
And now the Google Optimize has announced that by September 30th, they're sunsetting this. We are seeing roughly 30% of the market of companies who are testing suddenly looking for a new product. So I think uh, this is a great moment for organizations to ask themselves what they're looking for next, how serious they are, and what they want to scale that towards. Obviously, as an experimentation vendor, this is good news for us because we're excited to meet a lot of companies, to work with them, and to find people who are passionate about scaling their experimentation initiatives. But I think the important part here is we've seen that experimentation is a technology that takes a lot of resource and investment to do right. And Google's done incredible work in popularizing this space and getting a lot of people to adopt that. And now it's on us to help make sure that we are helping continue the growth in this market and we're making people successful. I think that's a great way to look at it. And just from the sheer amount of news and writing that we've seen about this announcement, it shows that the industry is now putting experimentation front and center, which is really exciting and long may it continue. Hajir, thank you. This has been an amazing uh, interview. I've really, really enjoyed it. And thank you for bringing so much data and insight for the audience to listen to. It's been fantastic. We'll make sure that your contact details are available if anyone wants to get in touch with you. But otherwise, thank you. And hopefully we can get you back again in a couple of years time. I'd love that. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the latest transformation series from Valtech Cafe. Hit subscribe to get access to our whole back catalogue of conversations. And if you'd like to know more about what we do, why not visit us at valtech.com for all the details. Until next time, thanks for listening.